Dotnet Rocks episode 810 with guests Steve Smith, Miguel Castro, and Charles Nurse. Recorded live Friday, October 5th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. It's a lively bunch for the last session of the day. Absolutely. I think that's why they're here. Yeah. They want to see us crash and burn. Nice, nice. We're all a little punchy. It's rocky at times. And they want their beer. Yeah. There's been too many rocky nights in a row for all of us. Yeah. And uh, and here we are. And I just want to say to you guys, Mom Kamu. (laughs) That means welcome to the show. Nice. (laughs) I have a preference to Ken Lee. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Private references here. Well, this is the architecture panel at DevReach, and we have an esteemed group of uh, guests here, and I'll just let them introduce themselves, starting with Mr. Smith. All right, Mr. Franklin, this uh, is Steve Smith. I'm a EVP of services at Telerik and have been doing .NET programming for a couple of years now and uh, gave a couple talks on architecture this week. And my name is Miguel Castro, and I am not with Telerik. Instead, I'm from Jersey. Hmm. And I've uh, given a couple of talks yesterday, MVVM and DI Today, fourth time in DevReach. I love this country. My name is Charles Nurse. I'm Senior Architect for .NET New Corporation. I'm an ASP.NET developer, and I've been working on the .NET stack since the very first version. Nice. Architecture, yes or no? Eh. Discuss. Eh. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we can go. All right, Richard, you can take over from here. We're done. Hi uh, guys, where do we start on this particular one? Every, every, every app has architecture, just a question of whether or not it's intentional. And has it changed? One of the questions I was going to, uh, to float was, how do we define architecture? Like, what, what is the application's architecture? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw a tweet flew by that says I wasn't that good a programmer, so I became an architect. Yeah, yeah. I think that applies to all of us, doesn't it? Nice. <laughs> um, I'd like to raise a point, and I think one of the things that, that, uh, uh uh, bugs me in the way, and is I'm a kind of a practical architect. Mm-hmm. I I I don't position myself as a really smart architect. I don't know all of the of the architecture plans, but but I'm I like to look at things as what well, what what is the right tool for the job. And in uh, my line of work in in the web stack, the thing that's really bugged me in the last few years is the whole MVC versus web web forms mm-hmm. architecture. And one of the first things that happened five years ago when MVC was announced is, oh, so when are you guys going to rewrite .NET Nuke on, on MVC? Well, clearly you should have rewritten .NET Nuke in MVC. Well, yeah, but there's no business reason to do it. All of our extensions, all of our skins, they're all written with the expectation that we will be running on web forms. So mm-hmm. there's no real business reason for you to move. And I think sometimes we get too theoretical about things and we don't think about, well, what do our customers need from our application? And I think even before we can say, what's the right tool for the job, we should start with, what's the job? You know, what, what are we building here? Um, and I think that's more t- toward the architecture question. And a lot of us are dealing with legacy apps, and that was my, my position there. You're, you're already dealing with a scenario. Even if you're a consultant, you're often going in and trying to fixing something that, that, that already exists. And you've only got a limited number of architecture decisions you yeah. can make. That's a re-architecture decision. Yeah. It all breaks down, I think, to the, the, the common elements are, can be defined as building blocks. You know, everybody's got their own little definition of architecture. Just like, you know, in the, in, in, in the gym, we have a saying, you ask five bodybuilders, how they work this part of the body, and you get five totally separate answers. And I think the same goes with architects. You know, you ask them to define architecture. And to me, the best definition uh, to answer the original question was it's how the building blocks that make up your application are laid out. And those building blocks may not necessarily be um, .NET components just yet. They may never become .NET components. They're just, it's kind of a very high level. And you've always heard of an architecture at 30,000 feet, the architecture at 10,000 feet, the architecture at 1,000 feet. And it does kind of change. It's all about the building blocks. The building blocks are very generally defined up here. It gets more technology specific here. It gets very pattern specific down here. 
and it all contributes to the general architecture of the application. Let's go with you know web-based mobile apps, mobile apps that are going to uh, talk to some sort of service in the cloud or in your data center or whatever. How has the architecture of these things changed even over the last year? The preferred architectures or the standard architectures? I think the building blocks got a little, I mean, obviously they got a little farther away. Um, how, I'm not a mobile developer just yet. I don't do a lot of mobile stuff. I'm kind of wetting my feet with that. Um, as far as how it's changed, um, I see the building blocks, the source of the potential building blocks of an application has gotten broader as far as the technologies that can be applied to them and the vendors that can be applied to them. So it's not all about the C-sharp component talks to this, talks to this. Now we got a mobile device which may be a completely different OS um, that has one language talking to something on the back end that we may not even know what it is. So just the, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question correctly. I'm kind of, it, 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 things got a lot more abstract. That's how I think it's changed. And technology is, is it, the technology sources have more options. so wide. We have a lot more options. Yeah. We have to think in more abstract terms as we define the building blocks of our application. Well, we're living in a more heterogeneous environment now, right? It's, yeah. It yeah. isn't just all windows all the time. No, and thank God, that was getting boring. <laughs> well, one thing I think has changed significantly over the last five to ten years is that everything now is basically a smart client application. Mm -hmm. Even even what would just be a traditional web page, it behaves more, uh, the ones I'm building anyway, like a smart client. You know, mm -hmm. you've got single page applications, you've got jQuery and, um, and Kendo UI and other frameworks that make it very easy to write a full-fledged app that runs in the browser. Right. And, and then you have mobile, and, and whether it runs on iOS or Windows Phone or Android, those are all smart client applications as well. And so all those things need a way to communicate back to get their data. And so we have, you know, the service orientation and these REST services and web API are now at, at the forefront of what you're worrying about on the server side of your architecture, um, whereas a lot of your decisions about how to render things and, and provide user experience, that's moved now to the client device instead of being encapsulated in the angle brackets that you well, send over from the web. It's interesting. What you're saying, and, and I agree with you, is that web developers have become smart client developers. Yes, Just like because Windows the browser forms. has become smart. Yeah, you, you had the Windows Forms guys, the Web Forms guy in the .NET world, okay? Windows Forms guys, the Web Form guys, and the Web Forms, you know, the ASP.NET guys were, to were not considered to be smart client developers. But now it's all JavaScript. They are essentially building those same kind of apps. Yeah, definitely. Well, they've, un they've undergone a paradigm shift in the way they build applications. I mean, building a single-page app in a smart client way, the way you're describing, is radically different from what we're traditionally used to as conventional ASP.NET developers. So Certainly. we're all the way back to Charles here. See, this is why you need to switch from web forms over to MVC. Well, and actually, when, when you say that, we actually have to a degree. So, right. so in, the, in the current version of the product, we actually are using M MVC to provide our service framework. And in the next version, we will be switching that over to Web API. And we're using Knockout JS in, in the um, client side. How do you and preserve the plugins then for, for uh, your plugin capability that's been built? So we're up? still, we, we, the, the, the Knockout JS and the HTML is still in a web control. Right. It's still in a user control. So that our system understands to inject it in the right place. But then everything happens. The only thing that the code behind does is to register some knockout scripts and some jQuery scripts, and that's about it. Now, I got, what I really appreciate what you just said there, Charles, more yeah. than anything, is when I think about an architect, I think about the pragmatism you just talked about. Yep. The business cases affect the architecture. And right, if you exactly. can get that plan in place and lay it in front of the developers, then they don't have to worry about that. Well, at the end of the day, a web forms control spits out HTML and JavaScript and exactly. CSS. Exactly. Whether that's doing knockout or whatever, it doesn't really matter to you. It still works. The so same the way. only reason we need a, a a a web user control is in order to inherit from a particular base class, so that our so that our system can recognize it as right. an extension. That's the only reason. So every, everything else is just gravy on, on top of that. So whether you're building a typical web form with user controls or server controls, or whether you're just using plain HTML with, with JavaScript and communicating back and forth to the server with, uh, with RESTful services, it doesn't really matter. The only thing we require is that user control. Now, I don't just want to stay on web on this because there's a bunch of other styles of apps that are still quite relevant. I mean, although, can we really speak to any app anymore that's not calling through HTTP in some respect? I mean, is there any OData calls you're not using HTTP on? Really? Um, any apps that are not using HTTP? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's some, remember, I'm a big proponent of 
conventional WCF, I still defended quite a bit really? because I don't believe, yeah, I don't believe Web API is the end all to everything. It's a mm -hmm. fantastic product if your if your solution requires the interoperability that HTTP provides. Mm -hmm. But if I'm doing a service oriented application that is going to stay inside the firewall that has no interoperability requirements except within my organization, it needs to service multiple applications, I see no reason why I'm not going to use SOAP-based WCF mm -hmm. and incorporate that into my architecture. And at any point in time, I can put a web API wrapper around any of those and expose it to the outside if I want to limit what the outside can see. Yeah, I was just thinking that it's not that hard to switch up WCF back to HTTP anyway, just change the endpoints. It, it, it's not hard. You're, you're absolutely right. Now, that's a whole other argument. Um, that's WCF claiming it's fully interoperable, and it's... Um, I don't really see it that way. Right. Uh, I don't recommend it. If, when a customer asks me, I'll, I'll give you the answer of what I tell a customer because that's to me, that's my formal answer. Mm -hmm. If a customer says, um, I need to expose this stuff to the outside world, what am I going to use? I'm very simply going to tell them use Web HTTPI, Web API. If you need to expose something to the outside world and you need to make sure that any client has access to it, and in today's world, any client includes a little device on my belt and the devices that we carry in our backpacks, right? The mm -hmm. iPads and tablets and all that stuff. Um, it needs to be as simple interoperability as possible. And the HTTP-based interoperability in SOAP, in WCF, is still not very simple and it still has requirements on the client side that are not as open as what can be done with REST, with HTTP. I know that we've gone way away from calling ADO.net directly in a Windows Forms app, but I know that there are ADO some, of what's you, that? some of you out there that are still nursing these applications. And not a show of hands, but please clap if you are currently nursing an application that calls ADO.net directly, or some data, you know, non-HTTP data uh, source. Go ahead, clap. Just yeah. a few hands. So there's a few out there. So yeah. you're talking about any application that makes a direct call to a database. And right, go without through a first. going through HTTP. Oh, it seems service. like a dinosaur every, idea. For every ASP.NET app out there, the ASP.NET app typically talks directly but to the, the database. But the ASP.NET is on already on the other side on the of other the firewall. Side of the HTTP, right, yes. On the other side of HTTP. Okay, just making sure that you weren't counting that. No, no, no. I'm talking about a business application, a Windows Forms or a WPF application. You're talking about the client side of the wire. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We just don't do that anymore. It seems like dinosaur thinking. Like, well, why the, would you? Why would you put a firewall in there? You know, the firewall is why you can't do it, right? Because nobody wants their database out there for the world to hit. That's right. And nobody writes straight ADO.NET anymore. We're always we're using ORMs or micro ORMs or something. Yeah, or some kind of DAO, some yeah. kind of yeah. data DAL, access DAL. layer that you've been yeah. carrying and around. I really for don't like that word, nobody. You know, well, or even that nobody. I would be nursing along an app. I'll <laughs> bet you there's a couple of happy, healthy apps in that architecture still running fine and being added to because there's no reason to change it. Right. Yeah, well, and if they live inside the company's network, right. there's no reason not to right. just write it directly again. It's going to perform faster. It's going to be simpler. You know, there's going to be fewer moving parts. So, mm -hmm. And that, that, that right there is actually an excellent point because I, I honestly don't, I'm a big proponent of use the right tool for the right job. And a lot of times I'm only going to use a certain technology if I require the services of that technology. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason to really, you know, there's too many people out there and we all know some people in this arena who are using Web API for everything for one reason and one reason only because it's the cool new shit. Well, if it wasn't right, or that or Node.js. Or Node.js yeah. or even WCF. And a lot of times... I will still recommend, and I go and I do consulting uh, gigs at clients where I lay out a pseudo-service-oriented architecture that is actually not going to use an SOA technology like WCF or Web API. I say pseudo because I'm still going to use the concept of orchestration classes or management classes that call into different business domain classes mm -hmm. and manage things within a transaction, for example, but I'm not going to introduce the technology of WCF if I don't find a need to, because it does add a layer of complexity. And anybody that's done any kind of W, who's done WCF programming out here? Show, clap, quick show of hands. Clap, clap, okay, clap. Quite a bit. Yeah, All right. About half the room. So yeah. you guys know that you need service contracts. You need data contracts. You need proxies. You need configuration. There's a lot of crap that you need. Yeah, and it's all great stuff. Don't just clap. Show us your scars from having used WC. <laughs> <laughs> all the risks go up. Right. I know when so, Miguel mentioned the, the, because it's the new stuff. And you said, like, Node.js. you right. got to admit, though, Node is stinky fast. Yeah, and 
very cool, but it's not the solution to everything. But I used no. to have a boss, uh, a guy that ran a consulting team that I worked for at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter in New York City many, many years ago. And this guy decided what technology we were going to use on a project by looking at the cover of MSDN magazine that month. Nice. Wow. And whatever word was on there, which included the letters XML one month, that's the technology we're going to rewrite our application <laughs> in. That's a Dilbert waiting to happen it, right it, there. No, this guy was, he, he is a Dilbert, absolutely. It, wow. it, except he didn't have the pointy hair, but he had every other trait. I think there is a trend in the certainly amongst uh, some people to uh, latch on to the latest and greatest uh, uh, tools. Of the Everybody job. wants to use the latest and greatest, but then you end up not getting the job done and extending. Right. And if you're a consultant and the client's paying the bills, you got to really understand when to say enough's enough and get the job done in the most expeditious way as possible. Because I'd rather get the job done earlier and make more money. I make less money up front and have that customer happy, keep me on, and do additional work later. And that's usually how it turns out. There's no glory in extending well, and you, it And you can't really make that decision unless you know what all these technologies really absolutely. do. So yeah, absolutely. Because I think you're going to be absolutely ruthless on that. And you're doing forms over data. It's going to be all light switch all the time. That's right. <laughs> access, buddy. Yeah, that's what I was, I was going to go there and just say, so why aren't we still doing all this in access? It's it funny that two two talks in a row <laughs> in access has come up. Yeah, yeah and funny. and and back to the topic of architecture. When I do these architecture gigs with iDesign, and mm -hmm. I go out on week week, um, my engagements are usually five day engagements, and on occasion I end up at a client where I really do not feel that I need to introduce this technology. Now architecture becomes more important than ever because mm -hmm. now I need to know how to properly layer out this application's building blocks so that if the technology needs to be introduced in the future it can be done with minimal pain. Notice I said minimal pain and not lack of pain. Well, right. and you can do that just by separating your concerns. And the nice. number one things would be separating concerns. That's, yeah. that's rule number one. It's almost a given there. Yeah. But, but how to properly layer things out so that things are separated, decoupled, and abstracted. And anybody that attended my DI talk now knows what all these things mean, um, knows how important that is. Because now, tomorrow, I can introduce a technology, and now some components may just become different implementations of existing abstractions that I'm programming against. And that's always the biggest challenge because the more decoupled you make things and the more separation you have of concerns, because you, you can keep doing that forever, sure. you know, the more complex the application becomes and the more issues you get with training or, um, you know, other, other concerns with, you know, how, how fast the system is, how easy it is to make changes. Yep. So there, there's a cost to that. But, oh, and, I'll, and I'll tell you what's even more challenging is appealing. One of the things that I hate doing is appealing to the lowest common denominator. I've always gone into a client trying to raise the common denominator, not appeal to it. And a lot of times that's not the case. The client's paying me to do a job, and they're paying me well to do this job as fast as possible. But it's a challenge to me to want to use great technologies and spend time doing proper architecture when the team that is going to be supporting this has no inkling of how to do how to use these technologies. And sometimes I have to make a decision based on who's going to come in after me. I have the glorious job of always starting something and never finishing it, right? The job of the architect. Um, <laughs> it's always somebody going to be after me. And I got to make sure that I understand that person's skill set and limit what I'm going to do so that it is maintainable. Because I do something that's fantastic and wicked cool and everything. If they can't support it, I'm the only one they're going to blame. Well, yeah, and rightly we get, so. We, we get back to this. <laughs> and rightly so. Because yeah. And we get back to these agile concepts like Yagni. Like, why would you build any of that if you're not going to need it? You're not going to need it. That was me and Brian's favorite term on our last project, Yagni. Yeah. And, I'm, I'm, and, and this is, and, and I'll have to fully admit, and I know this is on the record, I can't tell you how many times Brian Noyes has reminded me of Yagni. Right. Because I'm the first guy that loves to use new and cool stuff and new and cool techniques. Because stuff is not always just technology. It's techniques and patterns. But that mm -hmm. suffers from the same complexity that technology does. People won't understand the pattern that you're using, just like they won't understand a technology. And a lot of times I find myself, or, or Brian finds himself trying to step on the brake, as my, my father used to say, step on the brake and slow me down because I'm getting carried off into adding features that are not going to be necessary and that have not been requested. Yeah, don't try to tell the future, in other words. You exactly. prepare for the future, but don't try to decide exactly. now what that future is. It's up to be. a team to keep each other honest on that. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik, makers of Kendo UI. Are you a web or mobile developer who wants to build amazing sites and apps? Looking for the best tool out there that can really improve your development work? We've got the answer for you. Kendo UI is everything you need to build HTML5 and JavaScript sites and mobile apps. In the complete integrated package, you'll find a jQuery-based toolset that includes rich UI widgets, a powerful data source, 
dynamic data visualizations, and blazing fast micro-templates, all backed by industry-leading professional support. Visit the official Kendo UI website at kendoui.com slash .net, that's D-O-T-N-E-T, to find out more about Kendo UI or download the free 60-day trial with support. Also, Tablet Show number 19 was an interview with Todd Anglin on the Kendo UI. Richard and I talked to him at length about this great tool set. That's at thetabletshow.com, and look for show number 19 in the archives. And when you talk to the Telerik guys, make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. When you're thinking about what is the appropriate architecture for an application, there's, there's a lot of different constraints you have to deal with. So one of them we're talking about right now is who's going to be developing and maintaining this system. Um, but there's, there's others too, like how maybe it needs to be fast, maybe it needs to be scalable, maybe it needs to be very secure, uh, and, and understanding all of those constraints. And every client's always going to say yes. Right, right. Yeah, we need all of them. Yeah. And I love it. I, I once worked at a bank, and, and one of the requirements was it had to be secure. That, that was it. Uh, yeah. uh, I was like, well, can, can we narrow that down anymore? I was like, yeah. no, no, it just has to be secure. I was like, well, if we never turn it on, It'll, nobody will be able to do anything with it. It'll be, that's a this, secure. This is your internet line? Hang on a second. Right. <laughs> there, secure. Just so, pull out that plug. One of the things that concerns me a little bit from an architect point of view is with some of the cloud-based systems, you're introducing another constraint to how you develop your architecture. And specifically what I'm talking to is, um, or talking about is the, the services that the cloud uh, like Azure and, and Amazon, what they offer that is has a cost to it. You know, I'm going to use, you know, for every 10,000 times I request something off an Azure queue, it costs me a penny. Mm -hmm. So now when I'm developing my application, I have to think, is this fast? Is this elegant? Is it going to be maintainable? And, and affordable. Oh, wait, what's it going to cost? cost yeah. and, and I probably won't know that until I've already built the system and deployed it because they change their pricing model all the time, too. This is all bad news for anyone who just wants to write code. I, well, it's, it's, it's job it's, security. It's more than just writing code. I mean, it's no different than the old way. We've talked about this before. Where Remember the panel we had at Dev Connections? What does it take to be a web developer today? Six or seven different technologies. It's the same thing. What does it take to be a developer today? It's not just writing code, man. I'm the kind of architect that's a developer. I actually spend 75 80% of my time coding. And so we, we're not big enough to be able to support uh, an architecture person or, or group you know, yet. So I, you know, it, 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 it's part of my job, but the development is, is a big part of my job too. So, so that, that's kind of cool. Now, how do you reconcile that? Because, you know, that's a challenging, you, it's, it's a, you know, this very opposing role there. The architect's very much a head up, managerial, looking to the horizon role, and the developer's down in the weeds, head down role. Like, can you do those two things on the same day? Not really. You, yeah, I think you have to step back every now and then and actually, well, you know, we have a, uh, Scrum-based uh, style of development mm -hmm. with three with three-week sprints. So I think the architecture part is what happens in the first couple of days of the sprint, and then the development part is what happens. It, in the, it, it in does, the but it's but it is a, a process that keeps resurfacing. And I keep putting my my the, the current project that I just finished with Brian is a perfect example of that because we were brought on originally just as a team of two. Brian being the tech lead, the architect lead, mm -hmm. uh, and me being basically Tonto. <laughs> and, uh, it's a Lone Ranger reference for uh, those of you that don't know the Lone Ranger and Tonto. Uh, so it was it was a, a dual uh, a, a, a two man project for a while until we got other members of the team. And Brian put the original architecture together with with a lot of input from me, and then became one of the developers, as mm -hmm. did I. And the two of us started developing this, but on a regular basis. We both, primarily him, with input from me, revisited the architecture. And one of the biggest jobs as an architect during the development cycle was ensuring that all the development that we do injects well into the architecture and does not break it. Well, this is where I see the conflict of interest, right? It's like you're going to hit a programming problem at some point, and then you have to turn to the architect and say, your architecture is flawed, you need to fix and this. And those things happen, and the architecture will be adjusted. And the architecture will evolve and grow and adjust itself. It, it, the initial architecture that you do in the first week is never set in stone. I think any architect that tells you once it's done, don't touch it, is blowing smoke up your ass, as we say. It, it, the architecture is subject to adjustment and is subject to change. And there's been many, many times where in our application, that me and Brian have been development, we find that something just doesn't fit right. And when we take a step back and look at it, we realize that there is a flaw in this architecture and this building block is laid out differently or is communicating in the wrong way and we make an adjustment to it. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that is actually agile, if you ask me. Now, I guess the argument then is when is the architecture right and your implementation was wrong? 
And, you, and I'm getting, you, and you, what I'm hitting yeah. on now is the conflict of interest. Right. You spent a couple of days designing that architecture. You've now spent a sprint implementing those pieces. Like your personal investment in time building that stuff is so much higher than architecting it that you tend to have the architecture wrong. I guess I always conflict on this role where I don't want to write on the, on the project that I'm architecting so that I can defend that role adequately. Say, it, did, did we implement this wrong? You know, the best, the best answer I can give you there is once again, relating to our personal experience on this project is we, the way we answered that question, I think, is when we're writing a development task, when we have a requirement and we're implementing this requirement into code, if we're able to write it, to separate it out into the different components, easily and know exactly where they're going to go and how they're going to talk to each other, we think we got the architecture right. Mm -hmm. If we find ourselves coming up with implementation and asking too much, I'm having a hard time fitting this into this architecture, that's when we take a step back and realize something's got to change. Either I'm coding this wrong or we got a flaw in the architecture. Or and we we've had it. both situations or we figure it. out that I'm coding it wrong. And we do a lot of sanity checks, me and Brian. Because we can't fit something in there just right, so we just call each other and, you know, this is what I'm trying to do, what do you think? And all of a sudden, he hits me with an aha moment or vice versa. Or sometimes it's that the developer doesn't have the skills to do what's asked of them. Oh, and God knows we've had that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So how can you tell, or what's the, the telltale odor when something is over-architected? I think when you find yourself spending nothing but weeks and weeks and weeks doing nothing but architecture and you still haven't gotten to the code, you're probably in that arena. <laughs> I, I don't believe that Agile uh, needs to be done instead of architecture. I think that you need some amount of architecture time up front. But if, if you can't lay out the initial architecture and start your application in at least just a couple of weeks, you're probably taking it a little too far. The architectural process will continue as your ar architect What about during the middle of it? What about in the middle of a, you know, in the process, maybe... It's a couple months into the process, you, you you get that sense that this has been over-architected. If there's what a lot of Yagni, the if there's a lot of you ain't going to need it, then you yeah. possibly hit that. What's your opinion? Yeah, I think you just need to be evaluating. Um, I, I, earlier in the day, I referred to pain-driven development. Yeah. So if this stuff is causing you pain, then you need to evaluate, are you still getting the value that you expected from this pain? Like if you're using, let's say, a message queue because you think you're going to need the scale. So all of your stuff that talks to the service um, all has to go into a message queue and then something else has to pull the thing off the bus and blah, blah, blah. And you find that, you know, suddenly you realize you don't need that much scale right now and you could get by with just writing it to the table. You know, try that. You know, right? spend a day and just rip that out and try that and see if that makes your life a lot easier. And when re-architecting, how much does the architect need to know about the code and implementation details in order to make the right decisions? I think that depends on the architect. Yeah. I mean, if... I would personally have more respect for an architect that, that knows how to code it than one that has read about it in MSDN magazine. Oh, I'd take it a step theory. further. Because, because I'd say the best architects were really, really good developers. Because yeah. you need to right. know yeah. when you're, you're essentially refactoring an architecture of code that's already been written and some stuff has to be thrown away, a lot of new stuff has to be rewritten, and you really have to have a sense of how long those things are going to take. Sure. In and, order to arrive at the right compromise. And there's there's a, a fine line, I think, between the design of the application, not from a UI perspective and, and you know, how the user experience is, yeah. but the, the design of the, of the components and mm -hmm. software and the architecture. And I think those are, are very closely related and have a lot of overlap. I think the developers need to have a, a fairly free hand over how the software is designed. Because yeah. they're the ones that are working with it, and it needs to serve their needs in addition to the business user's needs. You know, and... The business users have to come first, of course, yes. but the developers need to be able to work with the software. And have you guys ever been in the situation where the right answer was to abandon that last week of work oh, that yeah. we just did and, you know, say, we quit on this way. We're going with this way now. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And yeah, even, absolutely. If, even if it means I look like a fool for wasting your time and money for a week, I have to make that call. This is the wrong way. We have to go this way. I would say that it's probably been 10, 15 percent of the time. That you've, yeah. you, you've got, you go down a path and, and realize it's the wrong way and you have to back up. And the difficult thing to do is understanding when that is. Right. I mean, I mean, as, as you asked the question, when, when do you know when it's over architected or alternatively under architected? Sure. And, and, and when do you make that decision to know, oh, oops, we, we should start that's again? That's a hard decision to make, especially when you're admitting that you brought somebody down the wrong, you know. Right. 
a whole team. Well, well, you also found that there's sorry. There are polite ways to excuse that too, or or you know, common way. When I'm sitting in a room and we're in the weeds trying to figure out how we're going to get this to go, and there's one guy in the back corner saying, "You know, if we did this at Ruby on Rails, we wouldn't have any of these problems." <laughs> All right, you know, they say that's sort of a flag. It's like, huh, we're at the point of do we re, you know, oh, if we switch tools, it'll all be fine. Right. That's just a, a kind of a highlight of okay, you know, clearly we've got to rethink this. One of the things I think that we should just accept as software developers is that all the software that's worth writing is going into the unknown. Mm. If it was something that was easy and had already mm -hmm. been done a bunch of times and was commoditized, you just buy it off the shelf. Buy a 7-Eleven. So there's always high risk. And, and the best thing that we can do is fail fast. You know, get as close of a feedback loop as possible. That's what the right. testing does for us, too. It's like, we know we're going to write bugs. Mm. Do we want to find out that we wrote the bug a minute after we introduced it or six months after we introduced it and it's in production? This is a very hard ego pill to swallow than when the bug is actually in your brain. Sure, sure. You know? Well, I think we as developers are much better if we accept the fact that we know we're going to make mistakes. Right. You know, let's find out about them as quick as we can. But what about the architect, though? That's what I'm but saying. you see, in, in, in our situation, it's not a simple situation of the architect makes the design and hands it down to the developers. We're very much a team. Sure. I mean, so I have the title senior architect, but, you know, basically all the developers in the team I work on uh, contribute to, uh, to the architecture in, in the discussion. Um, I probably have the position where I can say and make a, the de decision of, you know, de deciding between two, uh, two competing ideas, but that's as far as it goes. And, yeah. and so it's not an ego thing because you've made that decision as a team. And then you move forward as a team, and then you make the decision to move back as a team. I think that's the proper way. The, the yeah. best way to do it in a in an environment where you're all working together um, for the same company and, and you're moving forward. It and may be different in a consulting scenario. And really, you know, the, realizing the damage that you're doing by continuing to go down that hole, that that wrong rabbit hole, if you will, um, the, you're actually can can everybody can breathe easier knowing that oh we don't have to struggle against this anymore because we're changing course. It's a new day, kind of thing. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes is from a, a Turkish proverb, and it says, no matter how far down the wrong path you've gone, turn back now. That's really good. Yeah. yeah. When does making it work become beating a dead horse? Just to turn, you know, software gets like that, where you, you've got so much invested in it, you keep fighting for it. Yeah, and then yeah. you get the, the tr uh, stereotypical death march project, yeah. where everybody on the pro project knows it's dead, but you're yeah. still going. Just a few more bug fixes, and, and it'll be good enough to ship. And, and if you think they hate you now... <laughs> You just wait. Until I've, had, I've had those kind of problems myself in recent projects where I've had to, I, I find myself, you know, beating a dead horse, like you say, right? And I, I get a Skype from Brian last week uh, that basically just, you know, laughing out loud, right? He's cracking up on Skype. I'm like, what are you laughing at? I never start a Skype conversation like that. He says, I just noticed the name of your shelf set. I had a shelf set of code out there called Dead Dogs Ass. Nice. Basically, I, I figured we have out, more bleeps in the show when yeah. you're on. <laughs> I figured out that for the, for a week, I've been struggling with this piece of code. I've been looking up the ass of a dead dog, and uh, I just called the shelf set that. <laughs> you ever heard that term? Yeah, no, I'm really it's like a <laughs> colorful <laughs> metaphor. I like that. Yeah, you're one big pile of colorful metaphor. Yeah, uh, that's me. All right, we're gonna have to bleep a lot of this show. <laughs> I think Rox is a family show. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component1. Smarter components for smarter developers. Charles, you're... Basically, living in a brownfield world, you have a large code base with a big right. commitment, and you're clearly trying to evolve it. I mean, I find it really right. interesting the way you describe this evolution. First, you led off with why would we want to use MVC, <laughs> and then you showed how we're actually going to do it anyway. Right, but there was a reason there, and there was a business reason versus in the it, it's not a rewrite; mm -hmm. it, it's sitting beside, and so so that so that was the decision. Uh, it was the right way to do the service-oriented approach. When, when you're, so did you guys paint a picture of where you wanted .NET Nuke to be 10 versions from now and then sort of build backwards to where you are? I wish. 
No? No, we're not quite there yet. Maybe two versions away, but not ten versions away. Okay, so maybe but, a year. But there is that year. concept of you're looking at a couple of versions ahead saying yeah. this is a goal and let's make some milestones to get along there. Because obviously you're not going to get you know, all MVC all the time overnight. Uh, you're not going to toss anything We're not going to get there ever, I'm right. sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we made some major decisions, like we, we, we switched from VB to C Sharp, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't say that's an architecture decision. It's using the same architecture. It was just a, and, it's about your team, re really. Sorry? It's about your team. Right. Um, well, the re, it was a business decision. It was a business decision, no matter how you look at it, that, you know, C Sharp has the, has the reputation as being the more professional language, and we were trying to move into a into a commercial environment and dealing with 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 enterprises. And and whether you agree with the perception, perception is reality. So that that becomes a, a, a business decision. So many of those decisions we make are driven by the, the 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 business need. But 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 you're right. We're always trying to change things. So we have mm -hmm. code that's ten years old. Uh, Don uh, and Nuke is going to be ten years old in just over two months on, 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 on Christmas Eve the, uh, this year. And so we have some really old, what I would classify in modern day, bad architecture in, hmm. in there. But you try wherever you can to make little tweaks to, to sort of to move it along without making uh, uh, a, a, a total rewrite ne uh, necessary. You never want to abandon anything. You try to take care of stuff. I mean, it must there be stuff. There are times when I sit back and I say, we really should start and rewrite because you you get to the point where you, when you're wondering, am I building too much on a on on a on fragile, an unstable? On a, on, on an I have unstable that problem foundation. with Windows in general. <laughs> <laughs> Time to repave. Nice. Now, I want, now we talked a little brownfield and sort of the challenges of keeping that evolving. I mean, one of the upsides, the fun part of consulting is you do get occasional greenfield jumps. You get to come in on a new app that that uh, gets to design from scratch, and if you when you're in that situation, why not use all the latest, coolest new bits? Unless, as Miguel said, you're the skill set of the people that are there. Yeah, right. Now, the, 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 another additional challenge on that same note is that I have to make the decision based on that skill set. Now, a lot of times, I have to consult with the people in charge because they always want the latest and greatest. Mm -hmm. They just may not know that they have an unable body of people that are going to be supporting this. Well, later. do they and actually want the latest and greatest, or do they want the longest life out of their app? Like, do you do you rephrase the question? Well, I've had that question, and my question, my 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 question, my reverse question to them, or the question I hit them back with is, well, what do you define longest life? You know, you'll always get that client that says this app needs to live, you know, we got 20, 25 years, and that's completely unrealistic. Mm. I think for if you're going to design an app, design it to live, you know, maybe seven or eight top ten years, because it's going to be subject to rewrite based on technology, business changes, all that mm. stuff. More sooner than later, you know. I think it's I think it's completely unrealistic and almost lying to themselves when the client says we really need this app to be written so we don't have to change it out for twenty twenty five years. Well, what kind of developers you, do you plan on hiring ten fifteen years from now that are going to want to work in this? You know, yeah. You know, ten years ago would be pre iPhone, pre really the mobile revolution. Well, right. still our VB six developers yeah. out there. Yeah, you still be you're still at the beginning of .NET at that point. Yeah, you know, if you think about it, every version of Windows has the VB runtime on it. Isn't that fun? Yeah, what, still. You, the original VB runtime? Yeah, yeah the VB6. VB run 300.dll is still in Windows 8. Yeah, it's got to it be. 300 or 600? Well, they had one for each version. Yeah. yeah. But there's one of them that I think yep. there's only one. I think there's one left, but it's got all of them. VB6. Yeah, it's, it's got to be there. It's not going anywhere. I mean, it's not hurting anything by being there, but it absolutely has to be there. He's right. There's still a lot of VB applications, yeah. still a lot of XP. Yeah. So a lot of Windows 2000 if you go to New York banks. Right. Do you guys have any uh, fun stories you can tell without naming names from the architecture world? Uh, you know, little explosions or uh, bouts of stupidity, thought. not I, necessarily I have, on your part. But. I have a, a pet peeve that's not really one instance, but I've run into this many times. I know I'm not alone. Of You have an architecture that's completely dictated by the DBA. Ouch. And, and so, you know, you're, you're in an organization where the data is sacrosanct and, and is the most important asset. And therefore the data, the database administrator or team of them, um, has all the keys to the database and you must sculpt your architecture around whatever store procedures or entry points that they give you. And, mm. and so your ability to, to have some freedom in how you design your application is, is very much constrained at that point. Have and you guys run into that as well? Pretty much rules out ORMs too, right off the bat. A lot of the time, yeah. Yeah. Am I the only one? Um, 
Well, we're a product company, so we're single product. But there are scenarios where we found that um, uh, our p potential customers are going to say, "You do use store procedures, right? Because they, they have DBAs; they want to control it. You're you're not using an ORM, you know. So, so even in a product scenario, you've got to be aware of, of those type of things. I mean, not that ORMs and store procedures are mutually exclusive. This is what no, Gen was built on, right? Sure. Right. There, there are options. And I, that's the crazy part is I have a customer even ask me that question. It's like, dude, you're not qualified for the answer. Right? You need an app that works. I'm going to build you an app that works. I've seen more coding horror stories than I have architectural horror stories. I guess my architectural horror stories are just lack of architecture mm -hmm. in general. Um, I was at a, a client recently, uh, obviously no names, um, where I had to do a code review, a design review, because they were having performance problems. Um, and I came across how they do, basically, the, the whole data access was designed by a team um, that was a very, very ad big advocate of Link to SQL. Mm -hmm. So the entire data access layer was written in Link to SQL. Um, Link to SQL talked to business objects, so there's an architectural breakage right there. Wow. Because now you got a data layer that is referencing the business layer, so we're going the wrong direction. Backwards, yeah. That's, that's, that's almost architecture 101, right? Archite uh, referencing happens in one direction only. Um, but when I came across a five-page link to SQL statement, wow. I am not exaggerating this for the purpose of the recording, wow. five-page link to SQL statement, Jeez. we figured out exactly why it was, it was performing poorly. So one of my first recommendations is obviously we need to correct this, we need to move this off. You're doing way too much in this link. This needs to be offloaded to the database. You got to know the guy who wrote it was proud as hell. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, that's right. That it ran he's at slayed, all. I, I, he if he's listening to me now, you idiot. <laughs> all right. So then, my Thanks suggestion is: you obviously are doing too much in the data access layer. Look, I'm looking at. I mean, there's multi levels of link to SQL here. You're doing calculations and stuff. This stuff either some of it belongs in the business tier because it shouldn't be done in the data, and some of this stuff can be actually aggregated down in the database tier. You know, use store procedures to do this. They're going to be significantly faster. Oh, we do do that also. And then they proceeded to show me the stored procedure. Which was twenty pages. Oh, nice. wow! And you know they're proud of that. Too. Twenty pages. It, it was so. Was that horrendous. normalization hell as well? Where were we over? I didn't. If part, my job was not to, to 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 analyze the database. I don't consider myself a database guy. I sounds like it was. I mean, that's it, the, that's I'm sure it was. hell right there. I'm usually. sure it was. It was. I'm sure that wasn't the where clause. That I didn't was, even want to read joints. through it. Well, it was temp table after temp table after temp table oh usage. And normally, when you find such a long stored procedure, it's because of that. They need yeah. to. At the end of the day, they need to do a select about this big. Yeah. Right, right. But they need to do it from all these different places. So it's temp, 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 inserts into temp. Because they don't understand that. Oh, it was, it was, it was horrendous. And then there was, then we get into different layers of the application. You know, uh, for anybody that saw my MVVM talk, uh, knows about property notification in, in objects using iNotify property change. Um, they were routing every, every setter, every property setter was routed through a helper class that called on property change on everything in the class using reflection. Oh. So, so if a class has 20 properties, the changing one property will cause property notification to take place on all 20 of them. Number one, that's wrong. Number two, the only way you can do it is with reflection, which contributes to a problem. So there were, sure. there were problems all over the place. Now the view model layer was, was calling views. So there was an architecture breakage right there. Um, there was all sorts of little details. Those wow. you call little details. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's I've, a re I've seen, total rewrite. I've seen, speaking of ones that don't have any architecture, um, ASP.NET websites, not web projects, mm -hmm. that were like just massive, huge things that I'm sure started as a small project in some corner of this company, and then later on became this mission critical, huge piece, and and they never changed it to a project. They never broke anything out into a business layer or broke hmm. anything out into a data access layer. And so every code behind has all the logic and all the data access. Oh, I still see that. Yeah. Open SQL connection from a code behind. Absolutely. Yeah. It still um, happens all and, the time. And that's just, a, like you said, a complete absence of architecture more than anything else. Client server website. Now, you've had none of these problems because you work on .NET Nuke and it's perfect. Well, and if I said I had any of those problems, I'd be, reve <laughs> I'd be revealing where, where they were. Right. We, we don't have perfect architecture, but, but uh, I'm not going to give any horror stories. <laughs> but I, I bet I, I it's not think... that bad, though. I mean, you know, 20-page well, sort of procedure, you probably don't have those. No, but we did have, we do have, we did have some methods that were significantly longer than they should be and had to be broken out into classes, you know, separate classes and separate methods. Um, 
but but that happens when you have a community contributing to a project. And, sure. And you know these were back in the in the open source days, and you know a lot of people had access, and 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 everybody you wanted to accept their contributions because you don't want to turn people away, mm -hmm. and so so you end up with things that are really not well architected and not well designed because. It's done by just people contr contributing pieces. Yeah, it's volunteerism. And, and, yeah, but you know that that changed over time, and it's got better, and it's got better, and and we're hoping it's still getting better. But there still is chunks of it there that is, you know, it works. So that's all that matters right now from a business perspective. But you know, it, if it stopped working because we did something, then we would be able to go in and and, and rearchitect it then. And I guess that's the bigger issue here is when we actually sit down and say, when do we really want to re-architect? When do we want to take this thing apart and actually maybe remove some functionality while we assemble things in a better way? Right. It's not an easy decision. Yeah. A lot of times you want to do it incrementally. Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, if you do need to put stuff into different projects or what have you, you can start by just putting folders. Like, let's say you do have a, a massive web application, whether it's MVC or web forms, website, web project. You know, if you want to break stuff into a business layer, just create a folder called business layer or whatever, BLL, and start putting the things in there. That gets you incrementally better um, separation of concerns. Mm -hmm. You do the same thing with your data access. And then after a while, you can put that into its own project, and you can kind of follow the Boy Scout rule where you're leaving the code better than you found it, and you're moving it toward a better design without having to spend a month offering no value to the business, rewriting everything. Because mm -hmm. oftentimes that fails. Yeah, well, yeah, after that month and you come back with, uh, no, we're still where we were. Or, sorry, it, it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, thanks for playing. Yeah, so I can, yeah, and, and we do the same thing. I would say probably if you look two, three years back, we didn't have any unit tests because it was such a legacy application that wasn't built with the concept of separation and concerns and, 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 and testability. Now we're probably about 25%, 30% coverage, which is it's still not great, but it's an awful lot better than zero. Mm-hmm. And so, so, and because we've started re, uh, re, re-architecting pieces that allow us to write you, uh, tests on it. With a goal of 100%? You're never not gonna get to 100%. So, I mean, where do you wanna be? I'd like to be somewhere between 60 and 70%. Mm -hmm. We have a question from the audience. I'm trying not to kill myself getting to it. There you go. What's your name? Where are you from? Hello. My name is Marius. I'm from Bucharest. And your question? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you were talking earlier about uh, uh, databases and uh, the business logic being stored in the database. How would you uh, uh, advise? Because from my experience, I, I, I've seen a lot of uh, enterprise applications with, uh, with a lot of business logic inside store procedures. So there were store procedures as the one you described, uh, several pages. Store procedures. That was that was me that you're probably directing that to based on my example, right? Yeah, 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 Miguel. Uh, you know, it's it's a, I think it's a controversial topic because it depends on what side of the fence you're on. If you're a DBA, you probably like the fact. No, that, I, I'm not a DBA. But well, I'm no, I'm speaking generally. If you know, DBAs typically like the fact that a lot of the stuff is is done in the in the database and they can control it. Um, I'll give you my answer is my opinion, the way I like to see it and the way I like to do my applications, uh, to me, every layer should have a purpose. It all goes down to that separation of concerns. And the database, to me, it's, it's a layer of the application. I mean, it's a tier slash layer. Um, and the job, as its name implies, is to store and access data. And honestly, that's really all I want to do there. Um, I generally don't like to even do transactioning in databases because I tend to do it at the service layer because a lot of times an operation for me, an orca, when I'm orchestrating an operation, it means doing multiple database calls and doing some other type of things also that may involve queuing or whatever and I need to wrap all of that in transactions. Now, there are um, some, now that being said, well that yeah. being said, I start, that's my, my, my answer there is where I start. Database does data access. End of story. Data access layer wraps the data access to the data layer, to the database. So it introduces it to the code. Business layer, business engines, I break them out into different logical uh, units. They perform the business functionality using the data from the data access. And then I got my orchestration or management layer, which uses more than one business engine to perform something more higher end for the UI. That's my, my minimal. Now, there will be times where I have to exempt that and I find out, I find that doing this kind of little calculations in the database may be beneficial. 
because I'm never going to need to do it in the business layer. It doesn't need to talk to any other component outside of the database. Might as well take care of it in there. I tend to attack those on a case-by-case -case basis, but I start by that black and white databases for data, everything, this is for this, this is for that. That's my something point to start. to add to your, your question, which is there are, th there are things and mechanisms that you can do in the database to support business logic depending on what those rules are. If one of the rules is that you know when a customer clears out their account and they say I no longer want to be your customer that all of their history goes with it you know that it gets moved or deleted or something so you can apply referential integrity and that is essentially a business rule you know that when I delete this record all these other records will also be deleted um or you know or, or things that you can do with triggers that also is about maintaining integrity in the data but those are rules, right? And so if it's a hard and fast rule, the database turns out to be the best place to put to implement but, but, that but logic. But, but they are data integrity rules, not necessarily business right. rules, right? Right. I wouldn't put, I wouldn't put something like this, this amount needs to be between 50 and 100 or it should not be written out. To me, that's a business rule. And that business rule is volatile. Meaning it is subject to change, and more likely than not, it will change. I don't want to put that in the database. You also probably want to be able to write a test for it. Exactly right. Yeah, so I, I pretty much agree. The main reason I'll put anything more in the database than otherwise is if I just need the performance of it, where pulling that much data into my application to, to filter it or, or perform some operation is way too expensive. Um, so I'll do that in the database. But unless it's something really, really complex, I'll try not to wrap it all in a store procedure. I'll try and have the, the business layer produce whatever SQL is needed and send that to the database. And then I can still write a test that says, am I producing the SQL that I think I need? Unless you're dealing with that DBA-driven <laughs> architecture, and then there will be no SQLs sent directly to tables. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think we're just about out of time. So I would like to, one more time, a big round of applause for our panel, our architecture panel. Give it up. Steve, Miguel, and Charles. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks! Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a van by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.